So when Kurt Vonnegut, who has the most distinct voice, I think, in American literature, certainly, like you always know it's Vonnegut within three words. So it goes. And all his characters talk like Kurt Vonnegut. They're all Hoosiers, you know? They all came from Indiana. You know? But because it all comes from one place. And is that the voice that we're trying to get? Okay, beaming to you from Acme Broadcast Headquarters in Venice Beach, California. The Acme Writing Academy is on the air. This is Rick Crisman along with Mike Magnuson, Bob Clark, Marcello Vasquez, and Jim Frank welcoming you, the listener, to another focused yet meandering discussion of the vicissitudes of writing. For tonight, we'll be discussing the ghost in the machine, that ephemeral thing we casually refer to as voice. Now, rather than throw it out to you guys, I want to start tonight and read a couple of passages from authors we've probably heard of, a couple of opening paragraphs, and I'm going to go first with uh, Ann Beatty from her most recent collection called The State We're In. Uh, This is the first paragraph of a story called Elvis is Ahead of Us, and it goes as follows. The house at the end of our dead-end street had been for sale almost a year when two girls and a boy broke into it through the back bathroom window. They were kids from the neighborhood, Genevieve, Blake, and Ted. Genevieve and Blake were unlikely friends, Blake tall and lively with ear piercings and blue fingernails, Genevieve very pulled together, more French than her mother born in Avignon, which her daughter had never seen and Mrs. Dupin did not remember. Genevieve was always called Genevieve, though Blake was sometimes called Fuzzy, Ted was really Edward. Not too much exposition, a little touch of some characters, brief description, a sense of where they're from, and we're kind of interested in these guys. And the prose is very nice. Short sentences, long sentences, flowing. You can see why she's had 129 stories published in The New Yorker. Okay, to contrast with that, I want to go to Stephen Milhauser. And this is from his We Others collection, and the story is We Others. And here's his first paragraph. We others are not like you. We are more prickly, more jittery, more restless, more reckless, more secretive, more desperate, more cowardly, more bold. We live at the edges of ourselves, not in the middle places. We leave that to you. Did I say more watchful? That above all. We watch you. We follow you. We spy on you. We obsess over you. We crave your attention. We hunger for a sign. We humiliate ourselves, always. Hence our scorn, our famous bitterness. But what's all that to you? Okay, very different. We've got these choppy, choppy sentences and the kind of obsessive repetition. We get a sense of this character. We get a sense that we're in a place we've never been in before. And to my way of thinking, this is something, a paragraph that could only be written by Stephen Milhauser, whereas... Ann Beatty's opener could have been written by, I think, any accomplished writer. She was maybe the first to write in that way, which is in the, in the absence of voice. That was the mission that Ann Beatty was trying to accomplish, really, is that it, it wasn't like somebody was talking to you. It wasn't like a character had inhabited the language you were receiving. It was just the language, just what you're seeing just what you're hearing. And you can see in that passage you read, 
you know, she started in an action and quickly backgrounded everything through actions that were born on other actions. And it was entirely flat and inobtrusive and voiceless in the nth degree. And to me, that's the voice of Aunt Beatty. You know, now she does, she's not that way when you meet her. Because that's not, you're, you're not meeting her when you read this material. You're experiencing something that she constructed. So we could see what she was seeing in her head the same way that she was seeing it. But what, what interests me more, way more than Ann Beatty is Milhauser. Well, that there's the same thing too. So this is, this is, so he's kind of an offshoot of that. Like, in no way would you imagine that Stephen Milhauser is speaking to you now, would he? Oh, no. Stephen Milhauser is writing in a voice that's clearly written on the page that is, that's functioning as writing and not as voice that comes out of right. a human being. He's created a persona. Yeah. It's, a, it's a persona that, yeah. I guess he, yeah. Yep, yep, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, like when, but, when Randy Newman writes a song, you know, short people or whatever, and he... He casts, you know, it's it's a bigot who's singing the song. Well, that's not Randy Newman. That's the character he created. Well, the difference is, is when Randy Newman writes a song, that song is written in the voice of people that you would meet on the street, even if it's I Love L.A. or whatever. You know, it's something that somebody would say to you. And that Stephen Milhauser passage, right? I, I'm not sure. Yeah, if somebody talked to you, you know, talked to you like that on the street, you would either run the other way or I don't know what. <laughs> But, sure. You know, like man, you fucked up. You talk, you, you talk like that. I will. I will say this, and we haven't really uh, considered it for tonight's discussion. But um, poets who write in the voice of particular characters very often produce uh, works that have more voice than people who write prose. That's part of what poetry is about: is being. I mean, Miller Williams always uh, like to point this out that no poem is meant to be read to yourself because he said, if you're reading a poem to yourself, he said, that's like other things you do by yourself silently and you're not really engaging with the text because a poem is one of those sorts of things that needs to be shared aloud. And so when you share something aloud, Mike's right, you're speaking it. It's coming out in a particular voice. So if you know, you're talking about My Last Duchess by Robert Browning or, or for instance, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock or something along those lines. I mean, those poems have a voice. I mean, a voice that, you know, instantly you can hear one line from that poem. And you say, I know that poem. There you I go. know that writer. I think that's one of the things that's really difficult to achieve in writing prose. For the longest time, when I was learning how to write fiction. I just kept on reading poetry, listening for different ways of voice and tone john berryman dream songs sure. uh, charles charles olson i maximus mm -hmm. you know because for me the challenge was is you know i'm come from from south florida and immigrant family and when when i first heard english it was in first grade so we're learning the dominant culture learning the the the, the mill hauser type of prose or or fiction that sounds that's being that's being written okay i read you something real quick from my um an obscure book by an Argentinian writer. Yeah. The context is this. Uh, Argentina had civil war, so to speak, when the capital city or the capital province of Buenos Aires wanted to annex, annex itself from the rest of Argentina. This was, I think, uh, 16th, 17th century. 
And the gauchos were a big part of this. And there was a famous caudillo. A caudillo is like, you know, owns his gauchos, owns his land. And, and there was like infighting going on, going on, right? So the guy's name was Chacho Peñalosa. And this is a English translation, a rather poor one, of a gaucho coming out one day out of a bodega or a uh, pulperia is what we call it, hammered out of his skull. Shit on the savages, those fucking Unitarians. I'm a son of Peñalosa, and I die for him. And if anybody wants to contradict me, come to the street. Because of the savages, I am fucked up. And fuck them and their mothers. For they, for they do not give me even a dime. And I will never take back what I say. For, not even if they put four bullets into me. I am El Chacho Peñalosa, El Gaucho de la Pampas. Nice. That's fucking voice. I'll leave it there for a second. <laughs> it's voice context. Is that, the exp- is that the exposition that we have to handle? Is the who, one? what, where, the who, what, where, and why? You know, we're setting up a story, right? So, you know, I think I, I think Jesus' son by Dennis Johnson is a great example of this, right? Emergency. Mm-hmm. Stories where he has such a strong voice. You know, what, what's the guy's name, the main character? Fuckhead? Fuckhead. Fuckhead, man. right. But he's still laying out the exposition. Like, you know what's going on. You know where they are. You know what I mean? But he's not using, doesn't sound like, he learned it from a comp class. And just it just sounds better. like he's talking to you. Like he's talking to you. You're cornered. He somehow <laughs> cornered you at a coffee shop, and he's gonna. Yeah, he's gonna tell you this. Yes. Uh, you know, voice is character. Hey, it can be. Certainly is that way in a lot of stories, even if it's in the third person. I mean, you in France, they they make a distinction between a novel and a, a recitation. So, for instance, uh, if you look at a couple of Camus novels, like The Fall, that's a, called a récit. A récit is a character's voice who's uh, giving an account of events, right? A recitation, a sort of testimony. Whereas a novel, on the other hand, is one of those works that achieves a sort of object, an objective sort of reality. Now, I, I, I know my definitions aren't exactly perfect here, but when you look at The Fall by Camus, for instance, it's all about the, the character's voice, right? And all about the fact that he's a judge penitent and all about a whole variety of things. And it's only through his voice, and he's speaking in such a way that it's uh, almost one of those where it's the author speaking to the reader as if the reader was sitting at a table by him in the Amsterdam bar. Or a bar in Amsterdam, excuse me. But sometimes the voice is also the the narrator and the way the narrator presents the the story, just like you know Holden Caulfield and uh, Catcher in the Rye. Well, do you, what do you? Th- this is an interesting question I've had forever. By the way, let, let, let's just let's just since we're talking about voice, let's consider point of view for a second. In the fall, the premise is that you're sitting in a bar with the narrator. You meet him kind of night after night, right? That's right. It, it's not all once. So you come back and see him again. And he's talking to you. So he addresses you. 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 But it's not like. But that's not second person. So what do you call no. it? So like yeah, that's the, that the reader is the character who's sitting next to him. But in fact, that's not the reader at all. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's somebody that we don't know who he's talking to. It's not like Bright Lights, Bright, or the one Big by City. Jay McKierney. Bright Lights, Big City, yeah. 
Right, right like Space City. Yeah, that's right. the second person. Yeah, that's yeah. that's totally the second person. I mean, there are long sections of the fall where it's the first person narration to someone who's sitting beside him, and it's you. So it it, it creates a really sort of strange dialogic. Yeah, because in and, traditional second person, you are the person who's you are the narrator. Right. Well, second person is an artifice, and and, yeah. and when we speak, we typically use the non-referential you. Right. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> where I where I'm from, we say you know for everything. I remember when I came to Florida when I studied with the great Harry Cruz, who was a big honor to sit in his office while he was drunk and stone and stuff, and he'd part you know cold <laughs> for to me, you know. And, I, and I'd say that. I'd say, well, Harry, I've been right, you know. And then, and then I go, to, you know, and it says, no, I don't know, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> huh. You know. He's, but that's because we use that. fucking with you. Hey. Use, well, of course he was. He was He was really a wonderful guy. But 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 like the, the idiosyncrasies of speech involve shifting point of views all the time. Precisely. Do. Don't you think? Yeah, they do. You exactly. know, I mean, we, we use all different registers in that sense. We're first, second, third, and you know, eighteenth person probably if we can discover it. That's right. That's like in Finnish. How many cases are there in Finnish? It's like there's fifteen or something like that. I never finished that book. Sorry. Okay, okay, everybody, take a drink now. <laughs> no. Now it's interesting. See, all this shit. A writer has to know this stuff. I think, I mean, you have to master this. I mean, if you're going to be writing realistic dialogue, and that's why, like, I don't have a book of Elmore Leonard around, and but when he writes, his characters are talking. I mean, they're just smart asses, wise, wisecracking, you know, drug dealers or whatever you want to call them. And I think you have to have a, Mike, correct? I mean, I don't want to use the word you have to have an ear for dialogue, but there's a talent to it. Yeah, Listen. It doesn't do too many people that, that start out writing think that they can write dialogue because they can speak the language. You know, I, I, I used to sit in workshops and go round and round with people, trying to beat it through their heads. That no, nobody wants to open a freaking novel and read dialogue, be introduced to dialogue, the way people out there in the hallway are talking. There's no drama in that. Yeah, well, right. like no, whoever uh, would say that. Uh, I, I said, I says to him, "Get the uh, fuck out of my way!" I got to go. Well, you know, it comes. It all comes down to the thing. As long as you're talking about dialogue, is a character only opens their opens their uh, mouth and says something when they actually have something to say. It's not to mark time. It's to advance the story, right? Look at look at people that write. Um, uh, Dialogue in screenplays or or stage plays. You know, those those actors aren't talking. You know, they're they're talking dramatically. Exactly. When your when your characters talk, a good a good measure is when your characters talk. They should be saying things that you'd love to have a big fucking fat ear sometime to over be eavesdropping on an interesting conversation at the next table. You know. Right. You're yeah. just glad you're sitting right where you're at, and they're talking as loud as they do. That's that's effective dialogue. Uh, that's a gr that's a great point. And by the same token, if you sit in a coffee shop and you eavesdrop on the people next to you talking to each other, it's going to be dull as shit. Yeah, 
they're talking about their schoolwork or what they did for the weekend or whatever. And unless they murdered somebody or robbed a bank, you know, who, who fucking cares? And the other thing is, is dialogue is a subset of voice, is it not? You know, I've I've been working real hard on on something lately where it's in it's in first person. I'm writing a novel, and the and the the narrator is telling this story, and he's you know he's clearly crazy. I think you know, and and if this narrator is trying to remember the story and tell it to you, is the dialogue what people said at the time? So could one of the other characters sound like the narrator? Because, in fact, that's the best the narrator could do. Do you follow what I mean? So, you know, this is so, so, like, dialogue is completely an aspect of voice. You know, and, unless we really think that one writer is writing two distinct people. You know, the only time we really have that happen is when, we're, when actors do it. Because a, a writer gives an actor a line and then the actor turns it into something else. But when it's on the page, that's all it is. So we think, you know, where we got to think of point of view and the nature of the voice. It could be that that Ann Beatty kind of retracted, bland, third person staying out of the way. Or it could be Millhauser co coming in and like chipping away like, this is my unique way of saying things. Like, I know it doesn't sound like that. Do you follow what I mean here or no? Yeah. Because yeah. re regardless, regardless of dialogue is coming through the narrator. The dialogue's coming through the narrator. And 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 by extension, is the dialogue coming through the uh, third person? So so when Kurt Vonnegut, who has the most distinct voice, I think, in American literature in a certain way. Like, you always know it's Vonnegut within three words. So it goes. And, and all right. his characters talk like Kurt Vonnegut. They're all Hoosiers, you know? They all came from Indiana, you know? and but Because it all comes from one place. And is that the voice that we're trying to get? You know, for me, that is, you know, I tip my hat. I think that's the thing. That's a, that's that's the kind of writing I want to read. And that's the kind of writer I want to be, where it's the, you're experiencing a writer and his way of articulating or her or way of articulating the world. This is how they sound, how they think. In, instead of, you know, these are these people that I thought of. I was all alone. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's this kind of really super intellectual thing because I'm really smart, and that's why I'm writing this really sensitive shit. <laughs> exactly. Listen, and, and listen, this character sounds different from that character. Is that what you're? That's what you're getting at, right? That, that uh, there's this artifice in making characters sound different from each other, whereas they should all be kind of a a, a function of the author's voice, right? Well. I mean, the thing is, wait, I, I stand out. You know, you think about that in terms of voice. Then, then you, and then you really can understand what voice is about. Like, like Martell, you were talking about yourself, but right. you know, what's that guy in Faulkner who was, uh, he was uncle to half a county, but father to none. Yeah, yeah. What's that? You know. But it's oh, yeah. like you think of the way you said it and the way Faulkner say it. You know, it's a totally different thing. You know. Yeah, and, and I think Faulkner allows himself to write within his culture to be the voice of where he's from. It's a place. This is a genuine thing instead of making it, you know, bland. Right. And you, and you, learn, a, you learn a lot from voice and the way to blend it, especially by reading Fire O'Connor. 
because Flair O'Connor can just all of a sudden out of nowhere, you sound like Manly Pointer. I mean, she's in, talking like that son of a bitch. She's in that voice, colloquial and all, and knows how to transition right out of it back into exposition. So you know, you know exactly where you are now. Where Holga's coming in, you know, <laughs> staring over yonder while her leg leaves in the briefcase mm-hmm. of a, a, a salesman. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> it's so wonderful. I mean, I think voice is that. Voice should be for me. Voice when I read American writers, and I'm reading Faulkner and Flair O'Connor, Dennis, um, yeah. Dennis Johnson, even Harry my Cruz, Harry Cruz. I mean, come on, Paget Powell, Paget Powell, voice, Barry Hannah, you know, yeah. And I agree with you. That's the, that's the Vonnegut. That's the stuff I want to, but but that's me. I mean, well, let me ask this you're writing, you're writing fiction. When you were first starting out, uh, trying to figure this whole thing out. Did you really uh, consciously think I've got to find voice here? I've got to find my voice, or were you just writing to learn how to freaking write? And by that sheer act of writing to learn how to write, that's you right. learn how to write, and that's your style that and your personality come into play. And pretty soon you're typing away, and you've got voice. And not think about rules. Yeah. And, 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 it, it just depends. Like, it just depends how contaminated you were before you began. Before you before you took it on, I mean, well, well yeah, you know what I mean. Because your personality ends up in the in yeah. the voice. The voice. I, I think they were contaminated though, and like you know, let's circle back for a second to what Jim was saying about his translation of Ramuse. You know, the thing is, is is that guy was he was writing in the language of his place. Yep. And, you know, I, I'm right. not trying to be like some kind of ruralist, regionalist, or whatever. I'm just saying that right. that like. When you live somewhere and communicate with the people who live there and everybody, you know, like it doesn't even have to be from there. It's just like your day-to-day dealings. There's a voice of a place. Well, I think, there's, a, there's an honesty involved in. Well, you're right, and uh, you know, uh, it's interesting. You know, the there's the way that a lot of people speak fondly of Shakespeare and call him the bard. And if you look at what a bard is, a bard is a is a national poet, right? A poet that represents a particular place and time. And uh, this writer, Amu, really wanted to achieve that voice. And in fact, uh, in many of the stories that I translated, he will use the first person plural when he's narrating about the place. He'll say, now, if you look out here, you can see our lake and our mountains. And over there, you can see the man walking through the right. vineyard, sulfating the vines. I love that. And uh, so, I mean, he'll alternate between that sort of national voice or the voice of the place that's right. narrating and setting up the context for these characters. And then the narration will slip in and out of the character's consciousness. And in the process, there's a merging between the bardic narration and the narration of the experience of the character and it's it's really kind of a bizarre thing so how, is, how important is voice for actual writer but you're right you're writing along and you know you want to sound like nabokov or whatever you know whoever whatever douchebag you thought you thought was a great writer and you're imitating emulating blah 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 and like you know clark was saying right and eventually you got to write it's survival yeah. It's, okay. it's good practice. It's good practice to pick out writers that you admire and you want to and try and write like them. Um, I think it's really good practice. 
but it's not something you want to, I don't think you want to copy someone else to get serious about it where you want to start sending stuff out. Okay. If I, I could, if I could go right. all MFA on your ass for a second, I mean, this is what I came to being, being a recent wet behind the ear oh graduate God. was, okay, I'd write a story and send it off to an advisor. And the advisor would write back and he'd say, he'd underline certain things. He'd say, this is the voice of your story. Now make everything else like this. Because in the, in the process of drafting, I would sort of accidentally stumble on some honest moments where I was just being myself, expressing myself in, in, in a way that only I could. And it, it had a kind of engagement to it. And whatnot, and then you look back at your draft and you say, "Ah, there's the voice of the story." And now let's get rid of all this other, you know, uh, chamber of commerce language, generic shit, right. and and bring it in line with this cool shit that you happen to, you know, betray about yourself in your first draft. Is it the voice of the story, or is it the voice of the writer? Voice of the writer. I mean, it, like. The way you described it is like there were you were you were like just being yourself and doing your thing and being uninhibited and being idiosyncratic. Like that's, that's the heart of it, isn't it? Yes. Like when are we us? But I, I heard an interview on on of this uh, guitarist named Wayne Krantz who uh, he played with Steely Dan and stuff, and he, you know he's a session guy in New York, I guess. A, a French uh, film company did kind of a, a like a little short three-part documentary of him, and they were asking him about his influences and whether he's going to play. You know, what does he hear of himself when he's playing the guitar? Is he is he is he sounding like Bop or you know is he sounding like John McLaughlin or whatever? Is, is he responding to something? And he says, "Look, man, I'm a 43 year old man." You know, why would I want to sound like somebody else? Exactly. Why would you know? I, I'm too old to to try to make myself conform to anybody else. This is a waste of my time. So yeah, I'm playing this way, and it's weird or whatever. But this is this is how my fingers match with a guitar neck, and this has got to be true of writing. You know, this has got to. This is about maturation. This is like uh, my art is not to satisfy you. This my art is to bring to life what I have within me. And if if this thing connects with you, then this is beautiful. That's what it's been all about. If it doesn't, well, you know, the, this happens too. There's a lot of disappointment in, in our artistic lives. But the goal is to let that go. You you're never going to be that other person. You're never going to be that great writer. You know, I mean, it's, it's not even worth bringing up the grades right now. You know, it can be is what we have and we can find something in us that is unique by maybe, maybe like what you're saying, Rick, is by letting it go. And, you know, if you think about what it's like, we, we talk about MFA land and the MFA perspective and stuff. Is, is doesn't it seem like that everything is is pointed, like the, the curriculum is pointed for you to uh find something that pleases your instructors well, that's, as opposed that's, that's, that's the context. to something where you find yourself? That's the context of But I, I think that, you know, in an MFA program, and I, I'm, I'm not one of these people that's going to sit around and diss MFA programs because 
when I was at the University of Arkansas for four years, it was like the best four years that I had at going to college. I, I will say this, though. I think I learned more about voice by reading particular authors. You know, I can sit down and I can pick up a narration by Nabokov, and I know it's a novel by Nabokov. Right. I can sit down and I can pick up a novel by Camus, and it doesn't matter if it's uh, The Fall, The Plague, The Outsider, The Stranger, whatever you want to call it. And all three of those books right there have very different voices, but I know that voice is Camus. When I sit down and look at Beckett, it's Beckett. When I look at Virginia Woolf, I know I'm reading a Virginia Woolf book. To a certain extent, I think that style is as much voice as it is anything else. And I think how one expresses oneself even in conversation, right? I think when I talk with Mike, Mike's style of expression is particular to Mike. I'm still learning some of yours, right? Uh, Bob, when I listen to Bob talk, Bob's that crusty old guy who's got a lot of wisdom. You know, I think Bob takes some pride in that, don't you, Bob? <laughs> I, I, I do kind of. I've gotten to the age in my life where I figured, fuck it, man, I've earned it. You have. <laughs> yes, you have. I, I met you like 25, 30 I, I years ago or something, yeah. and that's where you were then, too. I yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> I'm always kind of... <laughs> 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 Whatever he was, you know. When he was eight yeah, years old, we used to play Marvels in the schoolyard. <laughs> 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 <Yeah. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Imagine him. Oh, when I, I know, you. there's Clark. God damn it. <laughs> We've been on this him. playground for 23 years. <laughs> when I met him 23 years ago, he talked the same way he does now. <laughs> That's right, he did. I'm afraid so. You know, whatever the case Well, there's be. the point about voice. That's like your Clark's voice. still going to be Clark, you know? It's exactly. your, it's, Unfortunately. You know, it's, it's everything. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the entire fucking essence of who... You are as an individual. When you're sitting there by yourself, you're typing away, you're writing a story or whatever. I mean, it's it, it's who you are, whether you like it or not. Who you are comes out on that page in one form or another. Might come out in the dialogue, it might come out in the narration, but it's coming out. That's where your that's where your voice comes from. That's why we all have individual voices because we're all individuals. You just write enough, practice enough, you find your voice. There you go. Read everything, as Faulkner said. Even yeah. bad, even good, read even it. garbage. Read it all. Yep, exactly. Learn. Meg, Mike, you there? I'm there. Your last thoughts. We're just going to drift I, I, off in the, into the sunset as our... As I our, have none. As, our, as the sun sails away and our ship sinks slowly in the west... <laughs> we bid adieu the Acme Writing Academy living to fight another day thank you all for joining us we'll see you next time good night and happy writing